All right, on to our teaching time. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you have a Bible. Uh, the the, The theme of this sermon series is life is hevel or hebel, depending on which way you want to look at that. It's, it's smoke. It's a wisp of vapor, and then it's gone. That's the argument that the author of Ecclesiastes puts forward. Last week, we did an introduction to the series. This morning, we're going to dive in to chapter one. So probably a lot of you are familiar with an author named Stephen Crane, although you might not realize you're familiar with some of his work. In ninth grade, Uh, I read a book called The Red Badge of Courage. If you read that book when you were in American literature, you read Stephen Crane's most famous novel. Stephen Crane was also a poet. Uh, He wrote a lot of different things. He died uh, at a very young age of a very serious illness. He died when he was 29 years old, just coming in to his prime as an author. But he wrote a poem once, and the poem is called, I Saw a Man Pursuing the Horizon. Very short poem, but to uh, our study of Ecclesiastes, it, it makes a great point. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never, you lie, he cried and ran on. Ecclesiastes chapter one, hear the word of God. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes, and generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see it is new, it has already been, excuse me, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, having been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word this challenging and difficult message. Lord, you want to help us see this out of your grace and out of your compassion, not to depress us, not to 
uh, lead us to a hopelessness, but to help us understand what truly brings hope and what truly is without hope. Father, we have a very consistent and a very bad habit of putting ourselves at the center of the universe, of thinking that we know as much as we need to know, that we have the answers, and that we are self-sufficient. Lord, even those of us who claim to be disciples of Jesus battle with this feeling all the time. It's part of, it's part of our brokenness, uh, a self-assurance that has no uh, merit based on reason or evidence, but is there nonetheless, day in and day out. And so Solomon challenges us to take a good hard look at the world without you and to see if there is wisdom to be gained, if there is understanding, perhaps we don't need God. So Lord, I thank you for this challenge, and I pray as I do each Sunday uh, that you would uh, speak to us. Lord, this is, uh, these, this is the deep end of the pool, uh, and uh, we will not understand without your Spirit's guidance. So it is that for which we pray. Father, forgive my sin. Uh, please don't let me be a hindrance to your teaching this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, any search for wisdom, that's really what we're talking about this morning. Wisdom in this life, apart from a relationship with God, ends in failure, futility, and vexation. That's kind of the sum and substance of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is going to cover a lot of different topics in this uh, note that he is writing uh, to those who would take the time to read it. But ultimately, that's the question. Is there meaning in life if you take God out of the picture? I mentioned last week, and you'll see it again in the text this morning. You'll see it for several Sundays in a row. Solomon talks about life under the sun or life under heaven. And when he uses that phrase, he's saying, I'm looking at the world absent a relationship with God. What can be learned? What can be gained? What can be understood if man truly is at the center of the universe? If humanity really is the master of its own destiny, what can, uh, what can I take and learn and apply to my own life? And what he's going to tell us this morning is that that journey, at least that part of the journey, did not end well. Last week, we had seven reasons to study Ecclesiastes. I want you to know I'm making progress. This morning, we only have five observations out of this text. Uh, so let's dive in. The first thing we need to do is talk for a minute about the preacher. There is some debate about whether Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes or someone was thinking about Solomon in later years when they wrote Ecclesiastes. I'm, I'm going to hold uh, to the, the belief that Solomon is the author, but I want to deal with this honestly because I know there are some of you that study this pretty deeply and have already asked me the question, who, uh, who really has authorship here? Well, the debate on authorship really kind of surrounds the, uh, the different styles of the Hebrew writing. And what I mean by that is the, the language as it's written in Ecclesiastes tends to look a little more modern than when Solomon lived. So I was thinking about how do we explain this? And what I've done is I've taken three short quotes out of three different inaugural addresses that happened uh, some years apart. So I'm going to read for you a quote out of George Washington's inaugural address in 1789. And then we're going to read a paragraph out of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address in 1864. And then we're going to read President Obama's first inaugural address, uh, a clip out of that in 2008. All of them using the English language. President Washington. 
Such being the impressions under which I have in obedience to the public summons repaired to the present station, it would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the peoples of the United States, a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes, and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to his charge. Let me interpret. I'm here because you elected me. I'm praying that God will give us great wisdom and success, and we're going to use every effort possible to that end. Why didn't he just say that? (laughs) He did. We just have a different ear in which to hear. President Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, talking about uh, the circumstances of the Civil War, and he's going to talk, actually, he's going to talk theology for just a brief moment here. Both read the same Bible. He's talking about the North and the South, and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. And then he's going to speak directly about slavery. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another man's face. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither have been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Uh, We can understand his words a little more clearly, but, but we don't speak in terms of of slavery as wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but it's understandable to us. It's a little more modern. And then President Obama in 2008. Today we consider a never-ending journey to bridge the meaning of those words which, uh, with the realities of our time. For history tells us that while these truths may be self-evident, they're never been, they've never been self-executing. That while freedom is a gift of, from God, it must be secured by his people here on earth. The patriots of 1776 did not fight to replace the tyranny of a king with the privilege of a few or the rule of a mob. They gave us a republic, a government of and by and for the people, and trusting each generation to keep safe our founding creed. Now, you might need to look at that for a minute and really kind of pick apart what he's saying, but it isn't difficult to understand. Coming back to Ecclesiastes, what what some would say is that was more Barack Obama type language, more modern language, more easy to understand. So it couldn't possibly have been Solomon. However, there are a lot of other reasons why you should think Solomon was the author. And I'm just going to give you one this morning. It's because of the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. So he identifies himself as a preacher, but the son of David, king of Jerusalem, And then he says again, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And the way that sentence is written would lead one to understand that he's been king for a while, that he's not writing this in his 20s or in his 30s, but he's a little bit further down the road. He's been the king in Jerusalem for a while. And in uh, 2 Kings, when Solomon became king, God said to Solomon, ask me and I'll give you anything you want. Now think about that for a second. If someone had the power to do that, what would be your request? 
Solomon said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in way over my head here. I'm a young man. Would you please, please, please give me wisdom to govern these people? And here's God's reply. Behold, I give you a wise and a discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. When push comes to shove, my simple response is I don't see how a mind beyond Solomon's mind, another mind that is inferior to Solomon's mind, could have written the book of Ecclesiastes. So from here on out, I'm going to say Solomon. And you are more than welcome to come to a separate conclusion. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author of Ecclesiastes. So that's the preacher. Let's look at the, the tools he used. The second observation is that he asked a really great question. This is another thing that as you're studying Ecclesiastes, you should look for. Lots of questions. Lots of questions just tossed out there. Don't spend a lot of time looking for the answers. The vast majority of the questions in Ecclesiastes stand on their own two feet. He does not try to answer them, but they're the kind of questions that don't necessarily need an answer. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's his lead question. And you look at that and you go, that's a great question. I've woken up at night and I've said, what am I doing with my life? How, how is it that I'm working so hard and this is only where I've gotten? How is it that my life has gone so fast that I'm already in my 60s and I just blinked and a minute ago I was in my 30s? How can I possibly make sense out of the things that I see in this world? This is a very modern question and it's also an ancient question. It is the question, what's the meaning of life? Jesus used the same tool in his earthly ministry. In Mark 8 we read, Jesus asked a couple questions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for a soul? What is the meaning of life? That's a great question. And Solomon says, that's the journey I'm on. I'm going to go on this journey and I'm going to see if we can find an answer to the meaning of life. So Solomon begins in chapter one by looking in a couple of different places. And what he finds very quickly is that when you take God out of the equation, the foundation is awfully shaky at best. Solomon's first notion is perhaps I could look to nature. Perhaps I could look to, to the cosmos and I could find some real meaning and some real purpose in life. And the follow-up question to that is, well, maybe I could look at mankind. Maybe I could look at humanity. I could observe the way of the world, the way in which people live, and I can gain the meaning of life from those two experiences. Let's see whether or not he's successful. Let's start with the observable world. In verse 4, it says this, generations go, generation comes. He's talking about us. You know, folks come and go but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around it goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is Solomon saying there? What he's saying there is actually the, the, the cosmos the world, which we think we're the center of, takes very little interest in humanity. That things go on in nature regardless of who's inhabiting the planet. I was born on January 30th, 1959. Guess what happened on January the 29th of, of 1959? The sun came up, the sun went down, and the wind, the wind blew, and the rivers and the streams all flowed into the ocean, and then they returned, and they did it again. My mom died on January, excuse me, on July 28th, 2019. Guess what happened on July 30th, 
2019. The world took absolutely no notice of my mother's passing. It did the same thing over and over and over again. What Solomon is saying is the world, the created order, is, is not interested in mankind. The, the world is not here uh, worrying, wringing its hands, wondering what are the decisions we're going to make. And if you play that out to our particular day and age, we hear a lot of language about how we are destroying the planet. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We should really be good stewards of this earth. But the notion that humanity could destroy the planet is absolutely ludicrous. It, it, it can't happen. There aren't enough of us doing enough. We only inhabit 10% of the surface of the world. And again, don't hear me say Tom doesn't believe in climate change and all that. I'm simply saying that Solomon in his wisdom looks around and says the world is the world. You say, well, it's different though. What if we destroyed the world with, with nuclear weapons? Well, we wouldn't be destroying the world. We'd be hurting the world for a while. The water would be contaminated, but guess what the world would do with its contaminated water? It would kill us. So really what we're talking about is humanity. We're not talking about the cosmos. We're not talking about the planet. The planet kind of goes on its merry way. I want to show you a picture, actually a few pictures. Uh, and the bottom left-hand picture is the Jordan River. The Jordan River is up in Israel. And how many people have been to the Jordan River? Okay, in the last 20 years or so, we've got folks who've been to the Jordan River. So we have people sitting in this room right now. I don't know if they've been to that particular spot, but they've been to the Jordan River. Well, the guy over on the right, and it's, an art, and it's an artist's idea, but that's Abraham. Abraham went back and forth across the Jordan lots of different times as he watered his, his animals and moved his herds. He, he was very familiar with the Jordan River. And then about 1,500 years later, one of his great, 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 great grandsons came along, whose name was Solomon. That's an artist's idea of Solomon. He's kind of thinking. He's kind of, kind of seeking that wisdom. He, he looked out his window, and he saw the Jordan, same Jordan River. And uh, several thousand years, about 2,500 uh, excuse me, more than that, about 3,000 years after Solomon looked at the Jordan River, Winston Churchill looked at, at the Jordan River, and then you folks who have raised your hand, would Jordan River still there? And no matter what we do to the planet, the Jordan River's going to be there. The world is not taking notice of us. So Solomon, or Solomon says, I'm not sure looking at the planet is the right place to look to understand the true meaning of life because the planet's not looking at me. It's really taking no interest in me. The planet maybe corrects some things that we hurt, but it continues on. So Solomon says, okay, the world just kind of goes on, doesn't really notice us. What about humanity? Maybe the answer is in humanity. And we come to verse 8. Verse 8, Solomon says this, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon saying, I'm looking at humanity, and what I see as I look at humanity, and I think he's also saying as he looks at himself, is I am seeing a never-ending search for self-satisfaction. I'm seeing people consumed with themselves. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. And we, we mentioned this very briefly last week. No matter how much time you spend looking at stuff on your phone, you're going to look at your phone again. No matter, you know, what great series has just come out that I've, you know, we just finished Poldark a little while ago. I think I said something about that last summer. And, and now I'm kind of twiddling my thumbs waiting for the next one. I, have, I haven't found a, a, another good one yet that I want to start watching, but I sure have a desire to. I sure want to. The ear is, is always looking to hear more, to understand more. I'll give you a very practical example of this. I had an opportunity this last week to go on a retreat with a bunch of other pastors from our denomination. We met in Orlando, Florida. I flew out on Wednesday morning. About I was on the 7 a.m. flight, 
And going to Orlando, there's all kinds of fans. You got to have your, you know, noise-canceling headphones to get on a plane to go to Orlando. Southwest Airlines has this thing called pre-boarding. I think most airlines do it. So if you, you know, you broke your leg in a skiing accident and you're on crutches, it's going to take you a little bit longer to get down the jetway to get on the plane. You get a little blue card. You get to go ahead of everybody else. You know how many people were pre-boarding on a flight of 140 people in, uh, on last Wednesday morning? 37. I counted them. And you know why I counted them? Because a lot of them were just walking merrily on their way and skipping with a pre-board pass. And it seemed to me that that was very unfair to the A26 who was in front of me and A28 who was behind me. I was really upset for my fellow man. I was, I was, I turned around and said, I can't believe they're doing this to you people. I don't know why they would treat you so badly. That thought never crossed my mind. I want to know why Tom Ricks was getting shafted. And I didn't get a good answer. <laughs> the eye is never satisfied. Solomon says, I, I, look at, I look at people. I look at myself. I look at the world around me. We're all, we're all looking out for ourselves. You take God out of the equation, and what's left is trying to push to get to the front of the line. He gives another example. This in verse 9. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Now, Solomon is not talking about technology. He's talking about the human heart. He's talking about the meaning of life. And he's saying there are no new discoveries here. So think about the, how we talk out of both sides of our mouth with our children. On the one hand, what do we say? The children are our, our future, right? Have you, there was a, a very famous song about that of you. Children are our future. We want to teach them. We want to make sure they do great. And on the other hand, we say kids these days. Can you believe kids these days? So I went out and found a picture of kids these days. There they are. They ought to be out on the playground. They ought to be out running around getting exercise or eating some vegetables or something like we did when we, you know, drinking out of the hose and not out of a water bottle. But there they are totally, ignore, you know, ignoring each other in their own little world. Kids these days. Let me give you a couple quotes about kids these days. Children now love luxury and bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs and tyrannize their teachers. Let me give you one more. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They're impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they knew everything and what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them kids these days. By the way, the first quote was uh, Socrates, who lived 400 years before Jesus' earthly ministry. And the second quote was from a guy named Peter the Hermit in 1100 AD. Kids these days, there's nothing new in the human condition under the sun. If you take God out of the equation, humanity is humanity is humanity. The planet is the planet is the planet. And there seem to be no ultimate answers. Human history repeats itself, and we have no long-term memory. That's why he says in verse 10 and 11, if there's something that, that's been seen that's new under the sun, no, it's already been there. And by the way, what, what's happening now that we think is, is world-shaking, it will be forgotten by future generations. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that if you have teenage children, I'm not even going to go to the little ones, if you have students in high school today, you know what you have to explain to them? You have to explain to them 9-11 because they weren't alive during 
Now, all the rest of you, when I say 9-11, I don't have to say another word. You know exactly about which I'm speaking because that was a fulcrum event in our lifetimes. But how quickly generations pass. And so Solomon has this foundation of perhaps nature, perhaps humanity. I'll be enlightened in this manner, and it leads to a frustrating foundation. So he's going to switch gears. He's going to move away from the observable of, of, of people uh, and, and of nature, and he's going to move more to the ethereal. He's going to move more to theory, and he's going to attempt to seek out wisdom. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Solomon says this, I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. I'm looking for wisdom that man gives. I'm looking for humanity's definition of wisdom. Look at the very next thing he says. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done without God. I've seen everything done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Why, why does Solomon say, I'm going to look at it this under the sun? And then he immediately goes to God. And he immediately says, God's given us a miserable existence here as if he were blaming God. And a lot of people say, that's right. This is God's fault. If God would just leave us alone, the secular humanist says, if we just get God out of the equation, everything is going to be absolutely fine. And what Solomon does is he remembers his history lessons. He actually looks backwards in order to get, gain a context for his current life. And he goes back to his Torah. He goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the books of Moses. And I'm going to give you a very, I'm going to sprint through the first three chapters of Genesis in the next two minutes and tell you why Solomon talks about this business being so miserable. When God created the world, he said in the first five days, everything he created, and, and I'm not going to get into the literal days of creation, but God is the author of creation. Creation. He creates the world and he says, it's good. And then he creates a man and he creates a woman and he says, now there's the icing on the cake. This is very good. This is, this is my very best work. Why? Because we've been made in the image of God. We have reason. We, we can think. We have intellect. We have a soul. We can relate to one another in ways that animals cannot relate to one another. We are created in the image of God and, and God says, mwah perfect. This is outstanding. And then he takes the man and the woman. He says, now I've, this world is really sweet. This is, this is the coolest place around. I'm going to put you in the best place. So not only are you going to Disney and having a great time at Disney, but you're getting the presidential suite at Disney. You're getting all the amenities. You're getting everything. And he puts them in the Garden of Eden. He says, this is going to be outstanding. This is going to be so much fun. The three of us are going to have a great time. You're going to, you're going to have children and grandchildren. We're going, to, we're going to fill the earth. And our relationship is going to be a relationship built on trust. You guys trust me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm putting, you in, I'm putting you in the garden spot of the planet. I've given you to one another. This is going to be awesome. And here's how we're going to make sure that you know to trust me. I put one tree in the garden that you can't eat. It's a tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. And, 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 and it, it's not going to be good for you. In fact, it'll kill you. The day you eat it, you will die. So as long as you trust me, everything will work out awesome. And that's the warning that he gives. We have, we, have, we have creation, we're in this perfect garden, and then God says, trust me, please don't turn your back on me. And then a choice is made. And man and woman, both together, said, man was, they were, they were standing there together, and they said, let's be God without God. Let's, let, let's not listen to God. Let's not trust God. He probably doesn't have our best interest in heart. He's probably jealous, and he probably just doesn't want us to really experience everything we can possibly experience. And they turn their back on God. And the choice they made led to repercussions, because every choice leads to repercussions, good or bad. And when they ate of the fruit, 
And when God came and interacted with them, he said to the man, now you're going you're gonna to die. The end result of your choice of life without God is futility. It's vexation. It, it's, it's become an utter waste. And so Solomon looks at the world and he says this is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men. What he's saying there is that God has given us what he warned us he would give us if we took him out of the equation. In other words, truth be told, we've made a mess of things. It's not God's fault. God gave us the perfect, perfect set the table perfectly. And we're the ones who have destroyed it. And every generation after Adam and Eve have continued in this destruction. And so Paul, uh, Solomon says that this unhappy business is man's doing. And it is an unhappy business. But then he takes it to its conclusion. Well, is there any hope for man? And what he finds is that there is no man-made answer, verses 15 through 17. He, he looks at the world. He looks at men's dealings with one another, humanity, how we work with one another or fight with one another. And he says, what's crooked can't be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. Said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experience and wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to stop here and go down a really fast side road. You think about everybody that had been in Jerusalem before Solomon. There was a guy in Jerusalem way before Solomon named Melchizedek. Go study him and see how smart he was. And Solomon is saying, God made me even smarter than that guy. I'm not going to take time to do that. But trust me, that guy was a smart guy. All who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Great, Solomon, how's it all turned out? And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. There is no man-made answer. The deepest questions of life elude us. The simple questions of life elude us. Do you know why a cat purrs? How many people have cats? Do you know why your cat purrs? Now, you might say, well, when I scratch behind its ears, it purrs because it really likes it. Has your cat told you that? No, because your cat can't talk. Do you know that scientists have spent countless numbers of hours and our government has given grant money on multiple occasions to try to figure out why cats purr? And guess what the best minds come back with? We don't know. <laughs> why are moths drawn to light? More money's been spent on that than the cats. I'm sorry to tell you. I, don't read this stuff. It'll just depress you. We don't know why moths are drawn to light. Why do you get in the wrong line at the grocery store? We can't even figure that one out. I hope they haven't spent any money on that. Or at least I hope I get to be in the, in the study if they have. Why are people right-handed? There, there's some simple things in life we, we don't have the answers to. We don't have the answers when we look for wisdom outside of God. And so Solomon ends up, my fifth observation is this. Solomon ends up in a place where he doesn't want to be. But he's going to deal with it honestly. And he's going to deal with it truthfully. And he says this. For much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why? Because he comes to terms with the real terms with the reality of the situation. He comes to terms with the notion of I can replace God. And God has said, really? That you live 70, 80, 90, 100, 110 years? Your experience is limited for the vast majority of your life to about the 50-mile circle from where you live, and you know enough to be God. That's a very interesting idea. And Solomon says, guys, we're, we're looking at this the wrong way. We, we're thinking that we're the end-all, be-all, and we're just passing through, and our passing through happens like that, and then somebody else comes along and replaces us, and the world doesn't even notice we're gone. The preacher begins, in other words, to paint us into the appropriate and proper theological 
an emotional and psychological corner. He brings the notion of finding wisdom without God to its logical conclusion. It's a conclusion that's filled with hopelessness. No matter how hard you and I work for understanding, life lived from only a human perspective is ultimately meaningless and it's like chasing smoke. What's also interesting about chapter 1, and most of it, not all, but most of Ecclesiastes, is the preacher doesn't rescue us. He doesn't very quickly give us that verse that says, but don't worry, it's going to be okay. In fact, the honest reality in Ecclesiastes is he's just getting warmed up. Let's pray. Father, these are stark truths that challenge us at our very core. And as of yet, the preacher offers no solutions because it's appropriate for us to sit in the mess we've made and see it for what it's worth. He doesn't do this because he's mean-spirited. He doesn't do this because of hopelessness. He does it because the stark truth and presenting it unveiled in a clear, precise way is really the only way he can get our attention. Otherwise, we'll skip and whistle right past the graveyard, turning the other direction and pretending that we can figure it all out. So, Lord, we are uncomfortable, uh, we're bothered, and that's probably a good thing. In Jesus' name, amen.